Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. We find ourselves back in the book of Revelation, our sermon series. We took a, a break for um, a few weeks there, and then we had a guest last week. So, before we remind you of, of what these uh, what this section is about, I, I thought I'd set the stage a little bit here with um, a reflection on a book I read that I really enjoyed. It's one of one of my top ten novels um, called *The Grapes of Wrath*. John Steinbeck provides a really a harrowing illustration um, of the pressure families faced during the Dust Bowl um, in the 1930s during that Dust Bowl era. The, the Dust Bowl migrants, that many of whom wound up in California uh, due to poor farming techniques, due to a severe drought uh, that caused literally tens of thousands of families to migrate to other states. Um, but the recession had, had such a widespread impact um, across the nation that few people who made that migration, few people who transferred, found themselves in any better situation. Uh, They were struggling to survive. And in their weakness, families had to rely upon the kindness of strangers, which wasn't always so kind, oftentimes left them um, with cruel mistreatment. They were uh, devastated even further. And so the book itself is really a picture of depravity, of community, and of patient endurance. I think the the trials of the Dust Bowl migrants may be similar to the church in Philadelphia, um, which is described as having little power. We'll see that in chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. So we're not told what caused that predicament. Uh, were they a relatively small congregation? And so they had little strength to be an impact in the culture. Uh, were they um, weak because of constant persecution? doesn't say that either. Although the persecution was present in Asia Minor, as we've seen other churches, churches experience, that, that's not acknowledged here as being an issue In Philadelphia either. So maybe it's some kind of general suffering that they endured, which every everyone faces, whether you're a believer or not. Suffering in general because we live in a fallen world, because we face temptation and trials of every kind. How are you doing this morning? What's what's the state of your your strength? Do you feel weak? And drained? Do you know why that might be? The dilemma in Philadelphia describes the church as a whole. Um, But it would be appropriate to evaluate your own personal circumstances in light of their context. Understand what this letter might be saying to you. I think when you've done that, I hope you'll be able to receive the same message that they heard, which is, which is this, hold fast to him who opened the door and secured your place in his presence. Hold fast to him who opened the door and secured your place in his presence. 
before we read it, let's ask, thank you for this letter to the church in Philadelphia and for the encouragement that it is to us. Lord, calm our distracted minds right now. Help us to place ourselves under your word, under its teaching. Open our hearts to this truth that we might be changed by it. Lord, whether it be convicted of our sin or comforted by the gospel, may may we confront Christ in this word. May we come at his feet and may we submit to his lordship and may we understand what he calls us to and how he encourages us in the midst of our own trials. Lord, we know that your word is powerful and effective and that you have a work to do through your word in our lives. I pray that we would be open to that, that we would have eyes to see the truth, that we would have ears to hear it, that we would have hearts that are softened and ready to receive it and to respond appropriately to it. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the, on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, like the other cities we've considered in Asia Minor, this one was known for its worship of many gods, Dionysus being the primary god whose temple uh, they worshiped in, but there were other temples present, other, um, other gods that were represented. We don't know much about their involvement in the imperial cult as we do of some of the other cities, and so the evidence isn't there that they were at least as deeply enthralled in that kind of worship, but we know that it was a, a prevalent thing in Asia Minor in general, and so it probably had some impact upon the culture there in Philadelphia. Um, there was certainly some interest in worshiping the emperors as their neighbors um, experienced. Uh, the region was prosperous. It was populated with vineyards all around, 
but as we'll see, there are some insecurities about living within the city itself uh, due to its experience of earthquakes over the years, and one devastating one that happened in AD 17. Um, but we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. First thing I want us to consider is this idea of an open door. You have an open door, verses 7 and 8. So if you're following along in your outline, your first point is you have an open door. As in all the other letters, Jesus tells John to address the, the letter to the angel of the church. And we have suggested that this is an angelic being that represents the church. Uh, the contents of the letter are obviously and clearly meant to be heard by the congregation, but they're delivered here to the angel that is representing the congregation. So this opening sentence also serves to introduce us to the author of the letter. Right? Each letter begins with a description of the Son of Man that we looked at, that vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. And the description that's described here, or the description that's given in the beginning of each letter is relevant to that particular church. So as we look at this description of the Son of Man here, it's the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. How is that image or that description of the Son of Man, of Jesus, relevant to the people in Philadelphia, to the believers there? Well, they relate to the encouragement, um, sorry, the, the description here relates to the encouragement or the rebuke that's given to the church. That's, we've seen that each, each letter previously, but here, uh, Philadelphia is the, only the second church, along with Smyrna, who receives nothing but commendation. There's no condemnation here. They only are commended. So pause for a second on that. How would you like to be a church that only is thought of as having commending things to say? No condemnation, nothing wrong to speak of here. Well, let's, let's at least clarify that. This doesn't mean the church was perfect. It definitely was not a perfect church. No church has ever been perfect in this age. Our confession says the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and air. Find the purest church out there. It exists in Clovis. It's called Grace Clovis. No. Um, find the purest church. It's filled with mixture and air, impurities. So here, this letter from Christ to the church in Philadelphia, despite her weaknesses, the Lord is pleased with her. The Lord is pleased to commend her. And the description, again, of the Son of Man is that he is holy and true. That holiness and truth that define the Son are found in the church. There's a, a desire for purity. There does, there's a desire for doctrinal clarity and truth. Those things are evident because they define and describe the characteristics of Christ. And we are united to Christ. How can we not be changed by him? But it also describes him as the one who holds the key of David which points to his all-encompassing authority as king, that he has the key 
of David. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, God promises to give Eliakim the key of David with which he would have the authority to open and none shall shut and to shut and none shall open. So Jesus here is holding that key of authority. And we already saw as well in the description in, in chapter 1, verse 18, that he is holding the keys of death and Hades. So his authority even exceeds, far exceeds the key of, you know, or the, the uh, authority of David on the throne. The authority of Jesus surpasses every king inside and outside of Scripture. He alone possesses the power to bring salvation and to bring judgment. That's what is described here by the idea of an open door and a closed door. It's relevant because with the authority, he is able to set an open door before the church. That's what you see in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Jesus alone has the authority to set that open door before them. Christ alone sets the door. And so an open door oftentimes means evangelism in the New Testament. But I, I think here, as, as with other commentaries I've read, um, which, which actually kind of went both ways, I think it's valid to consider uh, Jesus encouraging the church here in their, uh, the effectiveness of their evangelism, letting them know, hey, I've set an open door for you in this community. You, you can go out and, and, and know that you'll be effective in that work. But I don't believe that that really relates to the rest of the theme of the letter. And so it's my opinion that, that this open door is referring to access to God. All right, Christ alone sets the door. It's an open door that is giving us constant access to God. It's the idea that we looked at a few weeks ago, the temple, being, uh, the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom, that we have access to the Holy of Holies. We don't have to, to go to a certain place. We don't have to be with a certain person. We can, we can go and be with Christ. We can, we can commune with the triune God through the blood of Christ at any time. He sets an open door for us to have constant access to God. So the word is in the perfect tense, and so it suggests a, a past act that has present and perpetual implications, present and ongoing implications for us. No one, especially the false teachers in Asia Minor, had the ability to shut the door that Jesus had opened, regardless of what they said. And we'll look at those false teachers in a minute, but the reverse is also true. If Jesus closes the door upon the false teachers, no one will be able to open it. In this case, however, the true believers in Philadelphia, Jesus is encouraging them with this idea that he has set before them an open door and it would remain open for them. And this is precisely why they could remain faithful because of what Christ has done, because of the open door. Though they had been drained of their strength, though they were filled with weaknesses and imperfections, we could say, they kept the word of Jesus and did not deny his name. They're commended for such things, for their integrity to keep the word of Christ and to not deny his name in the face of a community that was chastising them and, and, and mocking them and calling them uh, to reject Christ. 
So in, this second, in, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul was speaking to a church that had compromised in many ways. Uh, probably not comparable at all to the church in Philadelphia in one sense. You know, uh, very obvious sins were on the surface in Corinth. And he tells them about how the Lord gave him a thorn in his flesh. And we don't know what that thorn was. Many have speculated about what it was, uh, but it is mere speculation. We don't know if it was something um, physical or spiritual in nature, uh, probably both. But the idea was he had this thorn in his flesh that made him miserable, that, that he wanted to get rid of, that he asked the Lord to deliver him from. And so we read in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Philadelphia might have been weakened by any number of things, just like all of us. But we have a Savior who has set an open door before us. We have free access to enter through that door whenever we want. We can bring our weaknesses before the Lord with the full assurance that he will provide us the strength to persevere, to endure the persecutions, to endure the trials, to endure the hardships. No one can be saved apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. The door that Jesus opened so that we might have access to God can never be closed. It remains open forever. And so the first question I have for you is, have you entered through that door? Children, have you entered through that door? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? Have you, have you placed your faith in him? Have you repented and believed in the only one who can save you? In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as the door through which we must enter in order to be saved. And so there's no other way to find peace with God. Jesus said, I'm the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know Jesus? Have you entered through the door that he has opened for you? Well, for them, the good news gets even better. In verses 9 through 10, we find them to be an undefeated people. You are an undefeated people. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So the first thing we see here in verse 9 is that they will be vindicated. Jesus will vindicate them before their opponents. Regardless of the pressure that they feel from their opponents, regardless of how much it has weakened them, they will remain undefeated. 
because of their union with Christ. These are the same opponents that are mentioned in chapter 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The exact same description there given to these opponents. So what we said there and what I believe is true here is that they were ethnically Jewish. But because they had rejected Jesus Christ, they are considered liars of the synagogue of Satan. They were lying about their covenant status. They did not know the Father because they didn't know his Son. So in fact, Jesus and those who are united to him remain the true witnesses. Unless these false teachers would repent and enter through the door that Jesus has opened by his life and death, they will be forever shut out from the presence of God. So Jesus will make these people bow down before the feet of the church. This isn't in divine worship, but out of respect for them, out of the recognition that Jesus did, in fact, love them. They will come to learn that it is those who possess the faith of Abraham that are truly the sons of Abraham, as Paul says in Romans 4, that those who possess the faith of Abraham are truly the sons of Abraham, not just those who are ethnically united to him. The phrasing here in this passage is, is really a quote from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, uh, where we see that Gentiles who, are, uh, who had oppressed Israel are said to bow down um, at the feet of Israel and to declare them to be the city of the Lord. We see in Isaiah 60, verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So Jesus alludes to this, uh, but the, the subjects are ironically reversed here. It's the Jews who are bowing down at the feet of the unbelieving Gentile church or at least this church that is mixed with Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Greg Bill says, these Old Testament texts predict that the unbelieving Gentiles, and he, he quoted others in addition to Isaiah 60 verse 14 um, in the argument here, but these Old Testament texts predict that the unbelieving Gentiles would come and bow down at Israel's feet and to Israel's God in the last days. This prophecy has been fulfilled in an apparent ironic fashion in the Gentile church, which has become true Israel by virtue of its faith in Christ. In contrast, the ethnic Israelites in Philadelphia fulfill the role of the Gentiles, so the Israelites who rejected Jesus placed themselves outside of the covenant. In, in one sense, the Israelites had become Gentiles, aliens to the covenant. And it was the Gentiles who had now entered into the covenant community by faith in Christ. This is a clear example here of the church receiving the Old Testament promises that had been given to Israel. Right, that we are the recipients. We can read the Old Testament with full confidence that the promises that were given to the covenant community there are relevant for us as the covenant community today. All of scripture is God-breathed. All of it is relevant to the people of God for us to grow and to mature in him and to be nourished with the hope to endure. 
They were the true and spiritual Israel. So not only will Jesus vindicate the church before their opponents, but he will also protect them uh, during the hour of trial. And this hour of trial is a reference to the latter days tribulation. It, 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 it says the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. So it's not just this hour of trial that's coming to Philadelphia in the future, but it's the hour of trial that will impact the whole world. He will keep them. He will protect them. Now, some have read this verse and argued that it refers to the rapture of the church. It refers to the rapture of the church just prior to the great tribulation of judgment that is described later in Revelation. And as you're reading it, certainly it would seem to make sense, right, that he is keeping them from the hour of trial. That's certainly one option of reading that verse, but it really is never described anywhere else in Revelation, this idea of a rapture, of being absent from tribulation. In fact, the church is referred to throughout the book of Revelation as being present and yet protected, preserved through the tribulation. And so it's mere speculation, and it's never found in Revelation, and it really doesn't even make sense of the context here in Philadelphia. One commentator said, it's better to understand the phrase as a promise that in the final period of demonic assault upon the earth, believers will receive spiritual protection against the forces of evil. So the language is reminiscent of Jesus' high priestly prayer when he said, I ask not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I ask not that you would take them out. He says it explicitly there. It's almost like if this is actually a, a promise of the rapture coming to the church, that Jesus contradicts his own prayer in the high priestly prayer. I'd be careful about making Jesus contradict himself. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. If they're physical Preservation was in view, meaning that they're not just spiritually protected, but actually physically raptured out of the world, it would be inconsistent with the letters to the other churches who were physically persecuted and even endured martyrdom. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 and 13. So the frequent allusions here in the book of Revelation, and we've seen some already, but there's even, we'll see many more, the allusions to the book of Daniel also affirm the idea that the people of God will endure suffering, but that God would cause them to persevere. Daniel was not taken out of the lion's den, but he was protected from within it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not pulled out of the fiery furnace, but preserved from within it. Likewise, those who are on the earth during the great tribulation will not be raptured out of the world, but safely brought through with their faith intact. So this is the message that believers in Philadelphia needed to hear. And in their weakness, God would not allow them to experience any trial beyond their ability to bear. They might suffer serious physical hardship, but they would not suffer separation from God. So Jesus had already endured that hour of trial in their place. In fact, the same language of an hour of trial is used with reference to the cross. In his prayer in Gethsemane. So Jesus 
had endured that hour of trial in their place as he satisfied the wrath of God upon the cross, as he drank the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. He satisfied for this believing church the justice of God. So what looked like the certain defeat of Jesus as he hung and died upon the cross was in fact the final blow to Satan's head. It was his victory. The same Lord who suffered for them was now promising to keep them through their suffering. They might feel like they're on the brink of collapse. You might feel like you're on the brink of collapse. But Jesus is present. And he was ready to catch them as he's ready to catch you. To protect you and to preserve you. Are you confident that Jesus will vindicate and protect you? If you have entered through the door that Jesus has set before you, you have placed your faith in him alone for salvation, then you can be confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of his return. And so you can remain confident that though you feel weak now, for all eternity you will be immovable pillars. That's what we see in verses 11 through 13. The last point in your outline, you will be immovable pillars. Notice the language there. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast what you have so that no one takes your crown. So consistent with the other crowns that are mentioned in this book, there may be royal connections here, the crowns of royalty, or a reference to a victor's wreath, like in the athletic games that were prevalent there in Asia Minor. Both analogies fit the context, I think. They were exhorted to hold fast to what God had granted them, either through adoption into the royal family or through victory in their spiritual race, the, the victory that he has guaranteed they will enjoy. Jesus promises to protect, him, pr- to protect them from the hour of trial, and that promise would then give them the confidence they would need that they could indeed hold fast to what they had. This here is a perfect example of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Notice there's no, there's no tripping over the words here. He's given them every confidence in Christ's promises, and then he still calls them to hold fast. That's right. Hold fast to what you have. They are not incompatible or mutually exclusive truths. You ought to trust in the Lord who protects you while obeying his command to hold fast. Just as Jesus will make their opponents submissive, bring them to bow at the feet of the church so that uh, that they'll bow before them, he will also make the conquerors immovable. Hold fast to the one that you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, 
and then I will write on him the name of my God. He goes on to, to speak further about that pillar and what's being written on the pillar. But the image, the idea of a pillar is that it's immovable. Once, he, once you're there, he, he will place you in that position and, and you will never depart. It's a promise. And Jesus promises to give the victor or the conqueror or to make them a pillar in the temple. They will remain in God's temple forever. Now again, back to Philadelphia. Remember, they were considered unstable as a city because of the earthquakes that they had experienced. And um, that particularly severe earthquake occurred in 17 AD. <clears throat> and then sev for several years, they suffered aftershocks from that earthquake. And so many in the city were moving out into the kind of the suburbs of the city. It's still, still a very prosperous region, but no longer wanting to be in that kind of unstable, insecure environment where they were suffering from earthquakes. So there was a level of insecurity there, but Jesus says, you are secure. Christians have a security that can endure all forms of trial and tribulation. You're a pillar that's immovable. Dennis Johnson says, the victor in Philadelphia will enjoy permanent access to God's presence as a pillar built into the structure of God's sanctuary, never to leave his holy presence. So we are commanded to cling to God. Joshua chapter 23, uh, verse 8, puts it like this. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Explicitly calling them to cling to God. Job chapter 17, verse 9. We read this, yet the righteous holds to his way, but he who has clean hands grows stronger, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. So as we hold fast to righteousness and walk with integrity, we grow stronger. We mature. When the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to Antioch, he saw the grace of God at work among them, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. That wasn't a denial of the promises that God had given them. Because of the promises, he had confidence to give them the command to remain faithful, to be united in steadfast purpose. So you might feel like you have no strength, You've been weakened by various trials and tribulations, by persecutions of whatever sorts, spiritual, physical. You might feel like you're not fit to be a loose tile on the roof of God's temple. But if you hold fast, he promises to establish you as one of the great pillars that supports its structure. It is, in one sense, your awareness of your weakness that makes you fit for the purpose of serving as a pillar. 
it is your very sense of weakness that suits you for the position. Those who think that they are strong feel no need to cling to anything. It's the humble who hold fast to the gospel with all their might. And as they are the ones, or, or they are the ones that God preserves and ensures that no one seizes their crown. Not only that, but Jesus will write a new name upon these pillars. They will be identified with God's name, God's city, and God's son. Rather than a, a reference to the Trinity, this triplet emphasizes their citizenship as believers. They will enjoy divine intimacy and protection because God acknowledges their adopted status. Because they belong to God, they will receive the benefits of sonship for all eternity. So many in the, I'm going to conclude with this, but many in the, that Dust Bowl era, many of those migrants who survived, they, they suffered so much injustice in their life that they had really lost all hope in humanity. As we said, it's a picture of depravity. Even those families that were, were, were dying were taken advantage of. And so John Steinbeck says this, and it's where the title of the book comes from. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy. It's a reference to their suffering that has filled them with anger. And their anger, he's saying, will eventually burst open into a fury of wrath. Does your weakness fill you with distrust or despair or even anger? The message to the church in Philadelphia is for you. It's if you have entered through the open door that Jesus has set before you, you can be confident that he will preserve your faith despite the many weaknesses and imperfections that you feel. So hold fast to him. Hold fast to the one who has opened the door and secured your place in his presence for all eternity. Let's pray.